Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Well, let us hear our call to confession. Our call to confession is out of Proverbs 24, 1 through 2 this day. So let us hear the word of the Lord, which tells us, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. So let us examine ourselves as we hear this uh, here in the Proverbs, as, the, as Solomon teaches us here. Uh, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. You know, think about that. Um, we can envy those who are wicked people. We can envy their, their wealth, their power, their prestige. We can envy their, their uh, um, leisure that they have, all of those types of things. Um, people who are at heart wicked, but we look at what they have and the things that they have, and we can be envious of all of those things. But we are called not to be. You know, you, you think of where do you have all of that kind of stuff. You have that in like Hollywood or Washington or Lansing or, you know, places like that. And that's where people who have the wealth and the power and the prestige and all of those things are. And a lot of times we look to them and we think, boy, I wish I could have that. I wish I could be there. But God calls us, do not be envious of these evil men, people that are in positions of power where they can, where they're using power for their own selves, for their own pleasure, for their own prestige. Um, they don't have the glory of God in mind, in other words. They don't have godliness in mind. They're not concerned with Christ. And that's the thing. That's where we need to be called and pricked here, because their hearts devise evil, violence, and we see that. I mean, we see that with the, those who have are in positions of power and what they do uh, around the world because of that. Their lips talk of troublemaking. I mean, we can apply all of that very easily in our own minds. So we should seek instead to emulate the righteous. You know, we're going to be in Hebrews today. So Hebrews 11, we got Hebrews 11, which is the, the chapter of faithful servants of the Lord. Um, those are the people that we should be emulating, the, the righteous people who have given themselves over to godliness, who have been faithful, and who desire to honor the Lord. So what we need to do is examine ourselves in this and confess our sins when we find ourselves being envious of those who are wicked and evil, um, being envious of what they have, um, knowing instead that we have a God that we want to serve faithfully and obediently and and his Lord, our Lord and Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we need to be. So, this passage here reminds us of our need to confess our sins, doesn't it? So, if you are willing and able, if you would, please take a kneel as we confess our sins. school uh, we had a teacher that uh, was there and uh, she was a bit overweight and uh, she came up with some strange idea of being able to work towards running the Boston Marathon 
So very, very interesting. So she decided that she was going to pursue that goal of running the Boston Marathon. Now, this is like the late 70s, early 80s. Running wasn't a real popular thing. You, you go around the countryside today, you see people running, right? Um, oftentimes you see people running down the streets. Probably could go out there right now through the streets of Howell and find somebody jogging, right? Even though they should be in worship. So running wasn't as popular back then, um, especially in rural Indiana, especially amongst adults in rural Indiana who are in their 30s. You know, you can see maybe some high school kids or some middle school kids running because their coach told them to, but people just didn't do that thing back then, where I grew up at least. But she started running every day after school, and she would run on Saturdays, she would run on Sundays, and she kept it up. And over the course of the next couple of years, she went from being a little overweight to being very lean, long, being a very lean, long-distance runner. And she, she trimmed right up, and she began to run, and she began to run fairly well, fairly fast. And as she trained, we'd see her all over the country. We, we'd be in like some obscure road way out in the middle of the boondock somewhere, and there she'd be coming, running down the road. And we'd wave at her and all of that, and she kept working her way back or working her way up to the grueling 26-mile marathon that she was that was her goal. So running became this teacher's passion, and she put aside things that would prevent her from pursuing her goal of Boston. She put aside like desires of food and stuff like that that would weigh her down, and so she became good at, at keeping a diet and all of those things for energy, for running, and all of those things. Um, she put aside uh, a lot of other minor goals that she had to pursue her running. And so she, this was her goal, this became her passion that she had. So she would do that over and over again, running. The closer the time came, the further and further distances she would run in order to be ready for this big marathon. And sure enough, after a couple of years, uh, our teacher was ready to head to Boston. And so she and another teacher gathered together, and this, the other teacher was our wrestling coach, and he was a marathon runner already, and they went out there with their families, and they actually ended up doing very well. Um, she had trained well. Now, once she accomplished this goal, she didn't just all say, okay, well, my goal is done, and just sit back and become fat again, <laughs> but she kept, kept running, and she kept going, and then she ran the Chicago Marathon. And then she ran, I don't know, San Francisco Marathon. Isn't there one in San Francisco, I think? I remember her running a number of marathons over the next few years um, as we finished up high school. And so she kept running. And she ended up running in most of the big, well-known marathons around the nation. So her devotion to running really became an inspiration for a lot of her students because we saw her look at this goal and go for it and accomplish it. And it was an inspiration to a lot of us who were athletes. Likewise, in our text for today, the writer of Hebrews is going to use an analogy that this story applies to. And his analogy is that of long-distance running for the Christian life. Okay? Chapter 11, that comes before chapter 12 in Hebrews, right, is a great chapter. 
um, of the heroes of the faith, right? And uh, but we oftentimes think, okay, here's here's the heroes of the faith. Chapter 11 is great. It helps us to remember all these men that were back then and stuff. And it's really nice, quaint stories about these great saints and all of that. And we oftentimes just leave it there. We leave that chapter there with just, oh yeah, I remember Samson. Yeah, that's good to remember Samson. Um, I, I remember David. I remember Abraham or Abel. And then we just leave it there at the stories. But chapter 11 is actually as you go through it, is actually an exhortation to us to be like these guys, to have faith like these men. And so here as we come in then from chapter 11 with these heroes of the faith that we haven't time to flesh out, but you can read that, um, the chapter 12 begins with, therefore, therefore, and this word, therefore, demands that we pay attention to what we've learned in chapter 11. What you've learned in chapter 11. I'm taking for granted that everybody here has at least read through chapter 11 at some point. Okay? And this provides context for our life. Context is really important for understanding scripture. It's under, you know, we need to understand it rightly in its context. But it's also important for understanding our life. Context is very important. And that's what Hebrews 12.1 is really talking about. And so he says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he's talking about a race here. We are on a race, and we need endurance in this race of life. Context is the key of our interpretation of our lives. How do we see our lives? In what way, in what context do you see yourself? You know, as you think about your lives and how you live your lives, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself, in other words, as part of a secular society and you really want to fit into that secular society and relate to that society, but you also want to you know, your faith here, your Christianity here, but you want to be relevant to this secular society? Is that how you see yourself? Or do you see your primary identification with the company that you work for? You know, over here you're a GM man or a Ford man or something like that, right? Do you see your context in that? That you identify who you work for? Do you see yourselves at, in your primary context as that of caring for your household, or your racial group. You know, those are things that people oftentimes, that's their context, and so they talk about the racial groups that they live in. Or your family, you know, because I'm a DeWinkle, or I'm a Swanson, or I'm a Mar Martinez, Martinez. <laughs> right? You know, that's, that's my context. Or that you're a homeschooling family, or your classical Christian school family, or I'm a musician or I'm an artist, or something like that. How you see yourself, you see yourself in the context, and that's what you identify yourself with, and that will shape your manner of living. Right? It shapes your manner of living. The author of Hebrews gives Christians right here the proper context for Christian living. He gives Christians the proper context for Christian living. 
He says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Since we as Christians are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And he's saying, here is our context. We're surrounded by these great witnesses. We are surrounded by all these saints of old. All these believers that have gone on before us. And they're there surrounding us. They're, they're in the stands, in other words. Get the race picture, okay? They're running a race and all that. They're in the stands. They're cheering us on. They're encouraging us, demonstrating to us what true faith is so that we might run the race of life faithfully. And that's our context. To run the, the Christian life faithfully. And again, these aren't just a bunch of dead men whose lives we look at and think, well, boy, that was a really neat story about Samson, or that was a really neat story about so-and-so. But these are alive. These people are alive. Right? They're living witnesses that we need to hear and see and live in the context with. And that's the analogy that the author uses here, the author of Hebrews, that we're indeed running a race and the cloud of witnesses surrounds us. We're in that context as Christians. So the author gives us the true context for our lives. This is where we belong. We belong here in the midst of them. This is our audience that observes us running the race of our lives and they're cheering us on. So let's take a look at this in greater detail and what this means. Because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, we'll spend eternity with them. Right? These are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're going to spend eternity with them. With these brothers and sisters, we need to hear them and conform to their faith. You know, that's why this is Hebrews chapter 11 is so so important. It's about faith. It's about faith in Jesus Christ. It's about faith of these saints of old. And so we're to conform to their faith, which is biblical faith, which is Christian faith, not to the pattern of the world. We all have callings in our lives. We have unique callings which are specific to us. Right? We all have different callings. But we also have a general calling in our lives. And what is that? As Christians, we have a general calling. And that is our Christian calling. And that is to love and obey God. To love and obey our Father. To love our neighbor. To do justice. To love mercy. To walk humbly with our God. So where we take our vocations, right, and we have all different vocations, different callings and all of those things, in those contexts, that shape us and who we are, our first and foremost context needs to be Christ. Needs to be Christ. Needs to be faith. That's our general context. We love God. We obey Him. We love our neighbor. We do justice. We love mercy. We walk humbly with our God in all of the contexts in which we find ourselves. And our most important context needs to be Christ. Christ-centered. Now, we don't have the map of our race laid out before us. 
you know, when you run a, run a marathon, I'm sure there's some kind of map they tell you where to go, they point you in the right direction and all of that. We just did a, a run out at Country Dairy, and uh, they had a map. So you, you had this map, and if you got behind everybody, it was fine, because you could just follow the crowd. But the people that were in the head, they had to know kind of where to go and stuff. And so they had this map. But we don't have a map of our race laid out before us. It's more like an orienteering competition. Anybody ever do an orienteering? Any Boy Scouts out there? Yeah? So you remember that? So when our Boy Scout master, Scout master gave us an orienteering course, so he would give us a compass and a coordinate. Right? And so we looked at the compass and it said 170 degrees and we were to walk, you know, 255 paces at 170 degrees. And so we walked that and we'd follow the compass, we'd pick a point and walk to that place and we'd go 255 paces and then if we were accurate in how we were going, then we would find our next coordinates. And we would then go follow that path and we would find the next coordinates to that. Okay? You see the picture? Okay, that's that's our life. You know, we, we are given coordinates and we're to stay on that path here and we're to walk where God tells us to and then we get to a, a certain point and then he gives us another direction that we're supposed to go to and we walk on that path, we walk faithfully on that path to get to the next point. That's what our life is like. That's, that's our, our map, if you will. And so, what are we called to do? In the midst of that, like in the, in the orienteering thing, we're to be faithful in whatever the Lord brings our way. So when you're in orienteering, it doesn't matter if there's a hill in your way, or a tree in your way, or a ravine, or something like that. You have to pick out the, the same coordinates. You've got to pick out the right coordinates to get there if you're going to arrive rightly. Okay? It doesn't matter whether you know, there's objects in the way. And so to be faithful, we are to be faithful in whatever the Lord brings our way. To be faithful in the little things of our lives. The race that we're on. And so get the picture. The stands are packed and the witnesses are there. The saints of old, the Olympians of the faith are there cheering us on. And we have a race to run. And, you know, this isn't uncommon. Paul uses uh, analogy of the race, you know, in several other locations like 1 Corinthians Nine, he also talks about, do you not know that you run a race, run in a race, that all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He also says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. So it's a common analogy. So what's your purpose in life? You know, what's our purpose in life? Wealth? Power? Prestige? Leisure? Those, those are all actually pagan goals, if that's your end goal, if that's your goal, is to be rich, or to have leisure, or to have power, and that's the end goal, then that's not faith in God, that's faith in those things. The Christian calling is faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, perseverance wherever He leads us, holding fast our convictions and obedience in all of life. You think of the Christians that are in Iraq right now being persecuted by the folks of ISIS. Right? They're, they're laying aside their lives for the sake of Christ. That's devotion. That's perseverance wherever He leads. 
isn't it? It's holding fast to our convictions and our obedience to Him. Just watched a movie the other day um, called God Is Not Dead. Anybody seen that? <laughs> All right. So in this, this young guy is having this struggle because his professor at college wants all the class to write down, God is dead, sign it, and hand it in. And so they've got this Christian guy, and he's like, I can't do this. And so they end up that they're going to have a debate. But this guy's Christian girlfriend is saying, just sign it. Just don't worry about it. Just sign the paper for crying out loud. This is going to ruin your career and stuff if you don't do that. This guy could ruin your grades and stuff. Like, you can't afford to do that. Just, it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal. It is a big deal. She, she's not living by faith. That's what she's saying. That's just wickedness. He should have dumped her like a hot potato. I was sad that he didn't. <laughs> It's not always easy, is it? It's not always easy. It's not easy for the folks in Iraq, is it? And so the author gives us training instructions. You know, our teacher had to have training instructions. She needed to know really how best to run and stuff. What does that mean? What kind of shoes do I need to wear? And what kind of you know, so she needed some training instructions before she got started. So the author here gives us training instruction. He says let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the author here is using the Greek runners as an example, something that the, his crowd would have been familiar with. And so these Greek runners would train hard for the running. They would eat the right things. They would slim down in leanness. They would try and get rid of all... Their, their wasted fat and stuff like that to be lean in order to run the fastest that they could possibly run. And then while they ran, they would actually strip down naked and run in the buff. <laughs> okay, that's the Greeks. Now, we don't do that today in America because we're part of a Christian nation. We have a Christian heritage in this nation. We know that's immodest, so we don't do that anymore, right? And the Olympians don't do that. But that's what the Greeks did. They would strip down, casting aside every weight that would weigh them down. Alright? Now, we do similar things to that today because if you're a real serious runner or a real serious biker, there's actually clothing that you wear, right? You wear like this real tight-fitting clothing that's smooth, that's going to help cut the wind as you're going around, right? So we do that. We have that type of clothing and all of that that will do that. It's very light. Swimmers might shave off all their hair in order to not let anything weigh them down, have no resistance to the air or to the water and things like that, right? We'll, we'll look for the lightest shoes that we can have or the lightest bike frame that we can have. Right? So we do similar things like that, right? We're getting rid of all the hindrances, all the things that are going to weigh us down. And so these runners discarded anything that would slow them down when they ran their race. That's the idea. We get that, right? We understand that. 
And this is what the author is asserting for us to do in our Christian lives. But this is how sinful we are. Alright? This is how sinful we are. Because we either say, we might say this to close friends, or we might think it, you know, this technically isn't a sin. This particular thing here isn't technically a sin, so it must be okay for me to do. Right? We do that. I've done it. And then we enter headlong into unwise, foolish things of the world that will weigh us down. That are going to weigh us down. May not technically be a sin, but it may weigh us down. But the Bible says here that everything that weighs our Christian faith, our growth, our faithfulness down should be discarded, should be laid aside. Things like hours and hours of entertainment. We're entertainment junkies in America, aren't we? Hours and hours of entertainment. That's one of our big cultural issues of the day. Movies, video games, cell phone, Facebook, Pinterest, all of those things can weigh us down, distract us. Can't they? So you need to ask yourself, I need to ask myself, is this a help to me or is it a hindrance? Is it helping me grow in my Christian faith or is it hindering me from that? Is it helping me to grow as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, or is it weighing me down? And even though those things might not be sins, right? Are they edifying? Are they causing growth? Are they encouraging me in faith? Could be career ambitions. Could be hobbies that you have. Could be friendships that you have with people. Where you have friends that are, you know, causing you to do things that you shouldn't do. Or think things that you shouldn't think. Or laugh at things that shouldn't be laughed at. Are there habits in our lives, habits in our thought lives? Are these things helping us or hindering us? And that's a question that we need to ask. Abraham Piper said, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. We've all heard that before, right? Mine. Do you believe that's true? Do you believe that's true? Because you should. It's biblical. Okay? You should. We say, this... And this is where what we do. I've done it. I do it. Still, it's something I need to repent of. But we think to ourselves, yes, God is sovereign over all of that. Right? He's sovereign over everything out there. He is king over everything out there except right here. <laughs> right? Not here. Not here. This is my own. This is me we're talking about. I can do whatever I want to to this body. I can have an abortion. I can put a tattoo on my body. I can pierce this or pierce that or whatever. Right? Because we think this is mine. 
This is mine. This is mine. This whole thing right here is mine. God's not sovereign over this. He's sovereign over everything out there, but not me. Right? Don't we do that? I mean, I do it. We've been trained by a culture that thinks like that. Think about the abortion. That's the whole premise behind abortion. That a woman has a right to her own body. Right? That's because they don't believe this right here. They don't believe Jesus is sovereign over this, over these women's bodies. But Jesus is. You see, the Bible says that Jesus has all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. And if that's true, that you understand that Jesus has all authority over you, the things that you do in your leisure and the things you do to yourself matter to Him. Don't they? Don't they? They do. They matter to Him. And you know what? we got to get this. we all got to get this. He owns you. If you call yourself a Christian, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, He owns you. Have you ever heard this before? I think probably, I'm almost positive you've said this all before. Be surprised if you haven't. I am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Does that ring a bell? Right? I am not my own. I belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That means here, that means here, means the whole package here, I am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then as Christians, the things we do, the things that we say, the things that we think, the clothes that we wear, the tattoos that we think about, the entertainment we engage in, the friends that we have, the habits we participate in are subject to Him and His authority. We need to get that. No, we need to understand that. That we're not our own. But we belong to Jesus. When you go about life, the thing that we need to ask ourselves is, are these helping or hindering? Am I doing this because I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to serve Him alone? Are these things causing me to grow into maturity or are they modeling immaturity? Is this wise for me to do? Is it a weight that may not in and of itself be sinful, but it sure isn't helping me to grow? If that's the case, then those things need to be laid aside. Discarded. That's what Paul's saying here. He hasn't even reached sin yet. What are we to do? Cast those aside. They're hindering you in the race of the Christian life. And then the author says for us to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. So now he's going to get to sin. This hasn't even been sin yet. Now he gets to sin. He says lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. 
Sin easily ensnares us, entangles us. It wraps around our feet as we're walking along the path. It's that rope that trips us up. It's that vine that trips us up and tries to get us to fall into the ditch. It's that which leads us off the path. We must not take sin lightly. We live in a culture that takes it lightly, but we must not, as Christians, take sin lightly because it entangles and snares us. We must not give it a foothold in our lives. I have a friend from college, a guy that I went to college with. And he married a dear friend of mine that I grew up with in high school. And uh, she's just a, comes from a very blessed family. Her family was actually very instrumental in my salvation. So very dear people to me. Um, I dated her a couple times in high school. I was not a good kid in high school, and so she should not have been dating me because she was a Christian. <laughs> I was not a good kid. But afterwards, her family had a tremendous impact on my life. Their Christian witness was fantastic for me. And through their witness, I became saved. So she ended up marrying this other guy. And this friend, who's a mutual friend, he gave a foothold to pornography. This guy, now just to understand, this wasn't some creepy, weird guy or anything like that. This guy, fresh out of college, went to work for Zondervan. Zondervan, the book, book publishing company, went to work there. And he worked steadily there, worked his way up. Eventually he moved out to Colorado, and he worked in Colorado Springs at some publishing house out there. He eventually moved back to Tyndale House, and each time he's moving up the corporate ladder in the, book, the Christian book publishing world. Right? So then he's working for Tyndale House, then he comes back to Zondervan, and then he's last place that he's been working for was Baker, Baker Books. Right? All familiar with that. Right here in Michigan, right? But he gave a foothold to pornography. Somewhere along the line, he gave a foothold to pornography. But over the course of time, you see, it ensnared him and entangled him, and it got worse. It got so worse, it got so bad that he ended up in child pornography. And then guess who came knocking on his door? The police came knocking on his door. Out of the blue. His family didn't know about this, but sin had entangled him. And they went and they searched his computers, and sure enough, guess what they found? child pornography on his, on his computer. He was engaging in that. The sin got a foothold in his life and entangled him. And though repentant, he's repentant of this. He's confessed his sin. The consequences are life-shattering. Right? He's never going to work at Baker again. Are you kidding me? Right? He's in prison for at least the next three years. He's left his wife a widow, if you will, and his children orphans. 
it's affected their church. Right? Who wants a guy that's involved in child pornography in your church? Right? It's affected that. It's affected his church in that they have to help take care of this widow and these orphans now. Because he gave way to a sin that so easily, right, easily entangles us. What about his children? What about his wife? Lifelong consequences for them as well. We pray that the grace of God will be sufficient for them to heal them from all the hurt that this has caused them, right? Look at David, right? David, a man after God's own heart, right? He gave a foothold to lust after Bathsheba. And he let a little sin in, and it so easily entangled him that it quickly spiraled out of control into adultery and pride and murder. Man after God's own heart. What did that do? Were there consequences to that? Yeah. We read about the consequences of his family. Right? We read about the consequences of his nation, himself, the little baby, That little sin of lust, that little sin of just bringing Bathsheba over to his house, spiraled out of control. It entangled him. Now, do you think you're above that? Do you think that you can hide some sin and you're above that? From getting entangled in such a great sin? The scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. Right? We're not above that. And I can tell you more stories. I've got more stories. But we don't need to dwell on those. See, we can all do really well in about 10 yards. Right? The sprint of about 10 yards. Even old folks can run pretty fast in 10 yards. Right? Maybe not. So, we're not called to a sprint, though. That's the point. We're not called to a sprint where we come out quickly from the gates. That's not the Christian life, but instead it's a lengthy marathon. The Christian life is a lengthy, lifetime marathon where we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But here's the truth. We can't do it on ourselves, in our own power, with our own strength. Because if we do, we'll fail. We'll fail big time. We can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstrap because that's us. And we're sinners. And sin's deceitful, desperately wicked. And it'll entangle us. So what's the secret? We can't do it on our own. We run the race with endurance with our eyes fixed on the prize, and that's Jesus. Because that's what verse 2 says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher or perfecter of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. We need to have our eyes 
fixed on Him. He's the prize. He's Jesus. We need to place our eyes on Him to know and believe that all that I am and have is His. We must fix our eyes on Him and not the world and its enticements, not on ourselves and our own strength, but on Him. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And we do this because He is the author, He's the originator, He's the forerunner, He's the pioneer. Those are all synonyms that go with that Greek word there. He is the originator of our faith. He is the beginning and the end. He is our faith and the object of our faith. He's our example of faith. Right? When he was put to the test, he pleased God, like back in chapter 11, he pleased God like Enoch. That's why he's at the right hand of the Father right now. He looked forward to the city that if you read chapter 11, Abraham looked forward to. Jesus looked forward to the city just like Abraham did. The new Jerusalem. Like Moses, he set aside earthly glory for the eternal reward. You know, remember Moses? Moses set aside, he was in Pharaoh's household. He, he may have been an heir in Pharaoh's household. He could have possibly been Pharaoh someday. And he set it aside for the eternal reward. Jesus made the most excellent sacrifice, just like Abel did. But Jesus isn't just an example of faith. He's the object of our faith. It is to him and for him that we run. And then we need to see Jesus here as a central feature of our faith at the cross. Because the text says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because of what Jesus saw beyond the cross, he had joy. And the joy of pleasing the Father and redeeming his people, he endured it for our sakes. And because of that, he is now sitting in authority at God's right hand. Because of that, because of the shame and hostility against Jesus on our behalf, we are called to consider him, as the text says, to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. We're told here that he is the cure for the weary and discouraged, as verse 3 says. So when we're weary of the race that we've been running, the Christian life that we've been running, we're not to give up. We're not called to give up. We're called to push on and to consider Jesus. This means that we are to consider intently that has that word that it's considering Jesus intently all that Jesus has done to look at his life to see all that he went through and the hostility he endured from sinners against himself he's been through it all in other words he's endured all of those things he ran the race well and that should encourage us up or encourage us to run faithfully as well now how do we consider him how do we consider Jesus? Well, we need to hear his word proclaimed to us. We need to hear his word proclaimed to us. Hear in the preaching of the word. We need to meditate on his word. 
We need to read His Word. We need to be in the Scriptures. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus met a couple of disciples, right? Discouraged, weary disciples. And He encouraged them by opening the Scriptures to them and how all the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to Him. Right? And then when He took the bread and He broke the bread, they were sitting down and He took the bread and He broke the bread and immediately they recognized Him and He vanished from their sight. Right? Supernatural event. What was their response? What, what did they respond? Remember what they responded with? You see, I, I think myself, maybe you included, would, would fixate, man, we were just with Jesus. Did you see him disappear? Wow, that was amazing. I mean, he was here right with us, and he disappeared. That's incredible. That's a supernatural thing. That's awesome. Wow, we were with him, and he vanished. Is that what they talk about? Here's, here's what they talk about. Here's what they say to one another. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? And he was opening the scriptures to them about himself. And he was showing himself to them. They didn't marvel at the supernatural experience they just had, but rather that Jesus opened the scriptures to show them all about himself, and it just burned within them. Right? That's why we need God's Word. That's why we need to hear God's Word, we need to read God's Word, we need to immerse ourselves in His Word. We need the life of Christ from all the scriptures to burn within us as well. Don't we? That's the cure of the weary and discouraged soul. To see how the scriptures apply to Jesus. As we're running the race, we get weary. Right? We get discouraged. We all do. But the remedy for that weary and discouraged soul is to take a drink of water. To consider Jesus. To look to Him. He's the author and perfecter of our faith, right? Do you want to run the race of the Christian life faithfully with endurance? Then we need to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. We need to look to Jesus who is central to our faith because he authored it and he's the finisher of it. He is the beginning and the end. We need to consider him and the hostility he endured from sinners. And recognize that. He endured. And we need to know that he not only endured the cross and despised the shame of it all, but also conquered all that and is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father where he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That he is our king. Here at the table that's set before us, we find our eyes fixed upon Jesus again. It gives us the opportunity to consider Him. Because this takes us back to the cross where His body was broken for us and His blood was shed on our behalf for our sakes. Because we put Him there. 
But he conquered that. And he's now risen and reigning, and that's the good news of it all, that Jesus rules, that he is reigning, that he is king over all things. That though we put him there on that cross and his body was broken for our sakes, you know what? He first loved, this is the good news, this is the gospel, he first loved us and gave himself for us that we might have life and may be able to run with endurance the race of life that's set before us as we look to and consider intently Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So let us keep our eyes fixed upon him. He is what will give us the endurance that we need. come to the Lord's table. This is the King's table that he invites us to come here and to hear him and to believe on him, to see what he has done for us. Uh, we see before us here the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, where his body was broken on our behalf, that we might have life in him, where his blood was shed, that we might have forgiveness of our sins. That is the good news, that our sins are forgiven and removed as far as the east is from the west through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us trust in that, and let us believe that, and let us walk faithfully because of that, with joy and thanksgiving, and with love for our Savior, our King, and our Lord. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body, the Church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God, and that you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So come. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.